You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Um, I feel that God has so clearly been speaking already today. Like so, so clearly. From the prayer meeting that we had before to just the contributions to the, just the way that we are now. I just feel like God's been speaking so clearly and I just want to continue speaking along that vein. Um, I'm just going to pray. God, um, beyond my words, I pray, Spirit, would you speak to people's hearts? Lord, this isn't about uh, arguing, debating, compelling. This is a work of your Spirit to transform our hearts, to let go and trust you. Amen. So today, we're going to be reading from the Bible, so I'll just grab it. And um, we're going to be reading the story um, of Mary pouring a pint of perfume on Jesus' feet. For the attentive among you, I'm not speaking the same passage as last week. But I did have that moment where I was like, wait a sec, Stephen, you're stealing my preach here. (laughs) I've prepared this. (laughs) There are, in fact, four um, accounts. In each of the Gospels, there's one of a woman pouring perfume in abundance over Jesus' feet. And it's believed that this in John is the same as in Matthew and Mark, and the account in Luke is slightly different. So, we're going to read. So, if you've got your Bibles or open up your phones, then turn them on silent. Why not? Um, John 12, verses 1 to 8. I'm just going to read. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound or pint of expensive ointment made from pure nard, which is a flower, by the way, um, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because... He cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So as ever, to make complete sense of this passage, We need to look at what has happened leading up to it. We've jumped into the middle of an unfolding narrative. Lazarus is one of our main characters. Not the first time we've been introduced to him, as are Mary, Martha, Judas, and Jesus. And we know them all already. Mary and Martha, we probably know the account that um, has really kind of shaped a lot of that worship. You know, Mary and Martha. Martha busy serving in the kitchen. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary knew what it was to linger Uh, with Jesus. We know them already. That was earlier when Jesus and his disciples were touring the kind of the countryside, going from town to town, preaching good news to those who needed to hear it. Their brother, Lazarus, the first time we hear of him is when his sisters, Mary and Martha, send a messenger to Jesus saying, my brother is sick. You need to come and perform a miracle. And in John 11, it says this. So this is before the passage that we read today. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, 
so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I'm not going to go through verse by verse this passage. It's not my focus, but just tease out a few things that I think are important. Lazarus died. You know, he died. He, his body was embalmed in oil, rubbed in spices, wrapped in grave clothes, put in the tomb, and a stone was rolled in front. Four days later, Jesus came. Jesus came and said, Lazarus, once the stone was out of the way, stand up, get out. <laughs> I love the bit where he says, Lazarus, get out. Because, you know, if he didn't use a name, maybe all these people would start walking out. So that's one I've stolen from Rick Warren. Um, and, um, but what was so remarkable about this was that he waited for Lazarus to die. He waited for Lazarus to die because he knew that healing a sick man would lead some to faith. But waiting for a man to die and four days later resurrecting him, that would lead people who were doubters to know that he's the son of God. And so because this is so amazing what Jesus has done, you know, the Pharisees, who are the like, devout Jews, are really angry at Jesus because some of the Jews have now said, maybe he is who he says he is. So actually we read in 1154 that Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there near the region of the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. I actually think now that Jesus had to kind of leg it Suddenly, Lazarus' resurrection had caused such an outrage that he had to get out of town. He had to leave. And why is that important? It's important because I don't think there is then any time for him to celebrate with Lazarus and Mary and Martha in this miracle that's just occurred. I can't see any space in that timeline of Jesus going back to their home and saying, "Woohoo! <laughs> let's celebrate, let's party because there's new life. Jesus had to leg it. So that means the story that we then come to, once Jesus gets back to the wilderness and en route to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, he stays with his friends. He stays with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And this is the first time that he's met them. So what's he going to do? Come on! He's going to party! A bit better than I just did. You know, I think genuinely he's going to celebrate. New life has been found. This is not just this pleasant meal like we're stopping at you know, Tolworth kind of service station. This is, this is a celebration meal. You know, this is with family. This is with friends. This is the Passover. That means the Jewish nation was descending on Jerusalem. Bethany's only six miles, so not far. So therefore, I think family, friends, others will be stopping in at Mary and Martha's house, dropping in, celebrating with Lazarus because they, they said goodbye at his funeral just maybe two weeks before. And now, there's new life. This is why it's important to understand that context. Jesus took this family that he loved from the bottom of the pit, the Mari pit of grief, to the glories of the heavens. He completely transformed and renewed their world. And I really believe he wants to do that again for people here this morning. So here we are, a family reunited from the jaws of death and their Messiah, is with them with his disciples sharing a meal. The scene is pleasant. It would have been a leisurely meal. We're told they recline at a table. Fresh dishes would have been bought out. You know, fresh meats, fresh bread. Martha was busy serving, we're told. If you know the previous passage, she hasn't learned anything. <laughs> Martha was busy serving again. Genuinely, Mary knew what it was to linger. You know, that word from this morning. Mary knew what it was to spend time with Jesus. 
Martha just got busy into her old habits of serving, serving. Jesus wants our attention. He wants our intimacy. So then suddenly, these people coming in and out, Martha in the kitchen, Mary sneaks into that kitchen cupboard. We all have that drawer. We have that cupboard where there's the, your best clothes. There's the silverware. There's the expensive stuff. Mary reaches up to the top of the cupboard. She reaches and grabs this box, maybe. I'm elaborating here, but go with me. Reaches this box. It's a wooden box, because what's in it is precious. She reaches, she brings it down, she takes out. It's wrapped in cloth. There's a bottle of perfume. It's a bottle of nard, we're told. Nard was a delicate flower that was grown on the steppe hills of the Himalayas in Nepal. It's then pressed down to form this precious, precious oil, this perfume. They couldn't just fly it from Nepal to Jerusalem. It's then transported probably along the Silk Route, many thousands of miles. This is exotic. This is expensive. This is precious. This is not just olive oil pressed down the road. (laughs) This is from the Himalayas. It is equivalent to a year's salary, 300 denarii, 30,000 pounds in today's currency. So she takes it out of the cloth. She walks through the kitchen, not sneaking past Martha. She's got nothing to hide. She walks past Martha with this bottle. She walks in. There's lots of people there. Jesus is enjoying the meal. She kneels down. She takes the cork out the top, and she pours it over Jesus' feet. And it just oozes, like that thick oil that just oozes out all over his feet, probably onto the rug, onto the cushions, onto his hem of his clothes. And she just enjoys worshipping Jesus. So similar to last week, the passage that we read, where we knew what the response to this other lady's extravagance was. The response was feeling ashamed. The response to this other lady coming in and crying on Jesus' feet was that others just were embarrassed by this person's response to Jesus. And here we are again, a normal meal, perhaps, a celebration. But then there's Judas. Judas is also present among the disciples. He would have been at maybe one long table or a series of short tables. We don't know. I don't really care. And um, he would have been enjoying his meal. He would have also been there enjoying his meal. Uh, He would have been lying down, we're told. I can imagine one hand maybe on his belly, you know, oh, yeah, I'm satisfied. One hand on his money pouch, just checking it's there, making sure he knows exactly where his treasure is. We're told that he keeps the money pouch, he keeps the purse. I think as he was lying there sharing a meal with his friends, he would have been playing over in his mind how in six days' time he intends to betray Jesus. How as he shares a meal in the celebration of Lazarus' resurrection, he's going, am I going to do this? Am I going to betray my friend Jesus? And he's playing this over in his mind, slightly distracted maybe. He sees Mary walk in. He doesn't care. He sees her kneel down. He sees her do that thing I just explained, take out the cork, pour it on Jesus' feet. And suddenly there's this response. Suddenly he's not distracted anymore because the smell 
of that perfume has hit him. The smell of that perfume has just wafted and hit him, and he is angry. He sees this as waste. What he sees is like this liquid silver being poured down a drain. What she does in worship, he just sees as waste. This tranquil meal has been disrupted. Mary's extravagant offering, it drew a sharp, direct criticism from Judas. And it's on these two examples that I want to focus on this morning and and consider how then we respond to money. I've been really influenced in in preparing this by a book by Justin Welby called Dethroning Mammon. He wrote it for Lent this year. Read it. I've borrowed a few bits from it. Um, And he says this, In Judas and Mary, we see embodied two competing economic systems. Judas represents the economy of mammon, and Mary represents the economy of God, the economy of manna. These are maybe tricky statements, so I just want to unpack these today. The word mammon is the Aramaic word Jesus uses, meaning money, property, or wealth. It means the earthly economy of material things, where there's a fixed amount of money in this world, and if your share's going up, someone else's is going down. That's how the world works. Like we said, we just bought a house on Friday. I'm going to come to this later, like, oh, wow, amen, the stress, unbelievable. Like, I'm like, do I actually trust God or not? That's another preach altogether. But on Friday, when money, when money exchanged, our bank balance went up for a little bit, and then it went quickly down <laughs> when it went off to the people we were buying the house from. You know, there is a fixed amount of wealth, and it goes up and down. Whereas in God's economy of manna, there is abundance. There is no fixed amount of blessing to be shared out amongst everyone. You know, it's not that those with, uh, you know, those with money can all too easily generate more money and thereby power and thereby influence. And those without money get trapped in this like multi-generation spiral of want and poverty. No. In God's economy, there's abundance. There's infinite abundance. And we need to make decisions each day to live in the good of that abundance to choose to make decisions that lessen the grip that power and money has on our lives. Jesus says this, and I think the same passage that Mark read earlier, so that's another one that they stole. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In the King James Version, which is a slight oldie English, it says you cannot serve God and mammon. That's what Jesus is saying here. So the opposite of mammon is manna. Manna, if you don't know, were the wafers of bread that God provided each and every day for 40 years as the Israelites walked in the wilderness. They were taught to only take enough for that day, double before the Sabbath, as any that were not consumed would spoil overnight. Manna taught the Israelites that God will provide each and every day. It's another reason why Jesus chose the language of give us our daily bread when we pray. So mammon, this is where we're going first. Judas, I'm going to speak a bit more broadly about money and our response to it now. Jesus talked more about uh, money than he did about any other topic, than he did about heaven and hell. There are more parables about money than there are about anything else. And just a few weeks back, we heard a really good message from Emmanuel on the 2nd of April about money 
And here we are now at the end of April about money, talking again. If you've missed the Sundays in between, we didn't cover it then as well. But the reason why we talk about money, or we have done, is because it's necessary. Rick Warren, who I stole a quote from earlier, an American church leader, says this. We spend so much time stressing out about it, worrying about it, being anxious about it, how to save it, how to spend it, how to keep it, how to use it, how to invest it, how to protect it. That's why it's good to talk about money twice in one month, because that's probably what we're thinking about a lot of the time. Because we spend our days making it, we spend maybe anxious hours worrying about the lack of it, or actually sometimes how to use the spare bit of it that we do have wisely. We're told in this passage that Judas wasn't concerned for the poor, although that was his excuse, but he was wanting to cream off the top. Greed was one of his many problems, but I'm so glad it's not one for me, not one for any of us, right? Tim Keller, uh, another American church leader, he says this, he tells this story, I was doing a series of talks for men at the Harvard Club, that's in New York, that would be very senior people probably, on the seven deadly sins, and I was packed out on lust, by the way. And Kathy, his wife, said to me, oh, what's next week? He said, oh, greed. She said, I'll be your lowest attendance. And she was right. And the reason was not because people said, I don't want to hear about that. No, it was because people thought it's not their problem. They, so they looked at their busy schedule and decided not to go to that one. See, there is a reason why Jesus Christ doesn't say, look, you might be committing adultery, it's obvious. But he does have to say, look, you might be greedy because nobody thinks they're greedy. Nobody. We have a problem with greed. I find that greed comes in all sorts of disguises, but the most dangerous is comfort and security. Greed tries to excuse itself by making us desire comfort and making us feel secure. Another one from Justin Welby, he says, on the one hand, we have the overflowing generosity of God, which reaches out in abundant provision to the solitary prisoner, even to the dead. On the other hand, we have the siren call of money, which tells us that it alone is effective in changing our lives and our world and meeting our every need. Can you relate to that this morning? The siren call that tells us I can fill that gap, I can create that need, I can provide that comfort, that security that you so eagerly desire. Oh, I can relate to that. Oh, I can relate to that so much. I remember my oldest brother, I'm the youngest of four boys, I feel for my mum. My oldest brother, when I got out of uni, he said to me, just in passing, oh, you always live within your means. So I was out of uni, I was in a lot of debt, because that's what uni does to you, and uh, amongst other things. And I was in a lot of debt, and I had no high-paying job in sight. My brother was off to Singapore. He'd just been headhunted to lead a business division, and I think paid pretty well. Uh, <laughs> I can guess. And he's kind of said, you always live within your means. And I was like, no, no, I've, I've learned to live like, within my means at university. No, I won't. And then through very just modest but gradual pay increases over the last seven years, eight years since I've been working. That's the default. My lifestyle just increases. Oh, I spend an extra 50p on a bottle of wine. Uh, you know, I go out to the theater one more time than I would have, or I go on that bit more nicer holiday, or, or, or I eat out for dinner that little bit more, or I, oh, it doesn't matter, I'll just grab lunch out instead of making it. All those little things that seem so incremental 
we do just live within our growing means. When I was at university, though, I learned to live outside my means. Not just the, like, student debt you get into, but my overdraft. I saw, I didn't see zero on my bank balance as zero. I saw that as, like, 1,500 up. Genuinely. Really, genuinely. I don't say that as a joke. I saw that as 1,500 up, not zero. Like, students, if you're here today, getting in debt is not a part of your student experience that you have to do. Like, genuinely, genuinely, learn with the little good financial stewardship. Don't learn just to live within your, within your overdraft that I did, because it took me years to get out of that habit to have my mind shifted. So alongside that, that was how I understood money. Alongside that, I also genuinely did learn to give from a young age. I learned that habit of giving with a little, and I'm so thankful for it. So thankful for that, that learning to give when I had a part-time job when I was a teenager, going into a salary, you know, tithing, giving, learning to give when it was uncomfortable. I did learn that. I'm so thankful for that. But what I didn't see was how this, my view of money and how I stewarded it, related to this, how I give. They're two separate things. I steward my money, or a lack of stewarding, and I give. And they're two different things. We can't be abundantly generous without understanding our relationship with money. Because God not only wants cheerful givers, but he wants trustworthy stewards. Jesus tells us the parable of the talents. You know, one of the many things that we can take from that parable is that he wants us to grow money wisely. It's not wrong to earn money. <laughs> it's not wrong to, to, to earn a good salary. It's not wrong to get your bonus or ask for a pay increase. None of that's bad. We're not called to like, live like hermits who just, oh no, money's evil. No, it's right to grow money wisely. So how do we combat greed? Um, oh man, I could elaborate on this all day, so I need to keep going. Uh, <laughs> how do we combat this, uh, getting our security from our savings and our salary? I think one way is by looking at the source and truly understanding the source. This is just one way. I am a professional fundraiser. That is my job, um, which is probably why I've thought a lot about money. I love fundraising. And in my seven years of doing it, I have spoken to thousands of Christians about their giving. It's quite a privileged place to be, actually. Deeply personal conversations, or very quick, <laughs> 10 seconds, nah, not today. <laughs> the whole gamut. But one thing that comes up again and again when I speak to Christians is no surprise, is it's not mine, it's all his. Now, my role, I now hold relationships with people who give tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of pounds. And that's their view as well. It's not mine, it's all his. Stewardship, what you think you own is really on loan. I wasn't expecting to put these Rick Warren quotes in there, but they're so grabby. What you think you own is really on loan. Stewardship, it's all from God. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell within. Romans 11, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory, all glory to him forever. It all belongs to God. How often have I been told that, but how easy is it to forget that God is the source of your money, not your salary, not your savings or your investment, that God is your source. The verse, though, that has really jumped out to me more than any other in um, in preparing this is Deuteronomy 8.18, where it says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his government. 
So again, emphasizing that the source of your money is God, but going one step further to say, actually, your ability to produce wealth, that's from God. Oh, I could believe that God's my source, but I work hard for it. <laughs> oh, yeah, God, you are my source, but I'll, um, I'll make sure I hit my targets. God, you're my source, but I'll stay late, so I get that promotion. You know, God, you're my source, but haven't I been entrepreneurial? Like, all these things, we kind of say yes, but no. God gives you your hard work ethic. That's what it says. Your ability to produce wealth. If you've got a good work ethic, that's from God. (laughs) Not just your money. That is from God. God wants us to be productive. God wants us to be effective. And he has positioned some of us here to earn substantial sums for his kingdom. There's a couple who I hold a relationship with uh, through Tear Fund, who's the charity I work for. And um, they started giving to Tear Fund back in the 80s when they were a young family. Probably quite modest gifts. But at that time, probably quite challenging gifts as well. Young family, it's hard to give. In 2011, their giving went up from a few thousand exponentially to now hundreds of thousands of pounds. In 2012, just went up straight away. And I meet with them a few times over the year. It's a relationship that I build with them. And and I've known them for about three, four years now. And he has an extremely demanding job. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) He has an extremely demanding job where he gets given these shares um, as part of that package, which is part of the reason they have that, that wealth. And each year they've kind of joked, oh, I could retire, you know, we've got the means. They kind of joked about it. But this time he looked exhausted, like genuinely weary. I was with a colleague, she hadn't met them before, and she just said, he just looked really tired. And he just said something so simple that really stuck with me. He just said, yeah, we could retire, but God's put me in this position where I can earn just hundreds of thousands of pounds and give it away to his kingdom. So why would I retire? Like, he gets Deuteronomy 8.18. Like, he gets it, not just the theory of it, he is living it. Because they're giving away that money, but he is choosing to work incredibly hard, that hard work ethic, to release huge sums of money for God's kingdom. Like, he understands it, but... He learned to do it back in the 80s when they had a young family, when his wife were living in a, probably a quite a small house with modest incomes. That's where they learned it. And now, this is where it is. Some of you probably, in your heart, you can say this. You're like, I love the idea of, in my lifetime, giving away hundreds of thousands of pounds. There are some of you who will certainly, well, I don't know if anyone's in that position today. You might be. Let's not joke about it. You seriously could be. And... Um, There's some of you who love the idea of that, but you need to learn it now. It might be that you give away from your salary or your bonus or your uh, investment or your property or all sorts of money comes from all sorts of places. But you can't expect to suddenly, when you get rich, get generous. Those two things do not happen. It's not cause and effect because mammon has that hold. It's got to be grown. It's a habit that's got to be developed. So, manna, let us look to Mary. And from now on, I want to describe this as Mary's act of worship. And we have to see it in this way because that is what it is. She is our example of giving in the light of God's economy, 
of mammon of manna over mammon. Mammon tells us to hold on tightly because it's ours. Manna reminds us it's all from God. So I've already dramatized this story a little bit um, about Mary getting the perfume down, so I'm not going to do that again. But she had joy in giving abundantly and freely, recklessly and with abandon. I don't know how many other ways to phrase it, but she gave all she had. As Adam said, giving that 10% in God's kingdom, that's the that's not the like, ceiling, the 10%, <laughs> that's the floor. That's a challenge, I know, to many, but that is actually what I read in the Bible, tithes and offerings. That's, that's the floor. However, the part, the verse I want to really just stick on for a few moments is this. The house was full of the fragrance of the perfume. The house was full of the fragrance of the perfume. If you pour a pint of pure perfume, like neat essential oils, it's going to be this heady, thick smell. We're not talking like high street version, it's going to fade off in a like, brisk walk. This is the like, pure stuff, the expensive stuff, the stuff that the other stuff gets made from. And it says the whole house was full of that smell. And God's got a sense of humor here because 15 years ago, something happened to Anugra that, like, God planned for now so I could tell this story. Like, it, it's amusing. It's amusing. <laughs> 15 years ago, Anugra, with a part-time job... Oh, sorry, Anugra's my wife. Sorry, I know you don't know me. She's there. Um, 15 years ago, she was saving on a part-time job, saving and saving and saving, because she wanted to buy a bottle of Chanel Number no. 5. Ladies, is that a good choice? Oh, apparently not. Um, <laughs> times have changed. And, um, and she was saving, saving, saving. And so she gets home. She's got the bottle. I'm not adding anything to this story that's not there. She spritzes and then drops. Yes. She spritzes and then drops. And it f- falls onto the bath, not full, hard bath, and... Glass shatters, and the perfume just explodes. Okay, I should have told this story at the beginning. You're all looking a lot more attentive now. Uh, and, wow, easy audience. And, um, and, and, and the perfume just clings to everything. Like, clings to everything. Those little particles, she's a scientist in her old days, those little particles of perfume, they just cling to every surface they can grab. And that bathroom is like thick, like nauseating thick <laughs> with that Chanel number no. five. It's not a spritz, it's the whole bottle. She opens the bathroom window, the smell doesn't shift. She goes to the kitchen, the hallway, the bedroom, the living room, opens up all the windows, and the smell is thick in the whole house all day long. For weeks, she's saying it now, it stunk. Um, it's a nice smell. For weeks, that smell lingered. It clung to clothes, it clung to the towels, it clung to her hair, so she carried that scent wherever she went. Mary doesn't smash a bottle of Chanel number no. five at Jesus' feet that's 50 milliliters. She takes a pint of pure essential oils and pours it over Jesus' feet. It would have clung to the rug, to his clothes. It would have clung to his skin. 
It would have stayed on him. It would have gone, drifted, hung to Lazarus, to Mary, to Martha. The perfume would have hung to Judas, who was about to betray Jesus. It would have drifted from that house out into the street. Not only the smell of the perfume, but that extravagant act would have been talked about and relayed from house to house and town to town before Jesus. As he rode on his donkey to Jerusalem on what is now Palm Sunday, it would have lingered. We know this is days before the Passover. As he prayed all night in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Judas betrayed him, that scent of generosity would have been with him. As he stood trial next to Pilate and carried his cross to Golgotha, that sweet smell of perfume would have been with him. As Jesus, our Savior, bruised, beaten, rejected, hung on the cross, betrayed by his friends and mocked by strangers, suffocated and he breathed his last, he would have been comforted by that sweet smell of worship. As he was betrayed, he would have known by that scent that he was loved, not only by his Father in heaven, but by his friends on earth. Jesus was sent to die. His mission was to save. We are generous as Jesus generously gave his life for us. Our Father generously sent his Son for the sins of the world. And it blessed Jesus, not only as the receiver, but it was a blessing to Mary and all those directly in the room and indirectly hearing the story or coming into contact with any one of them for days and weeks. Giving our money is not only a, a duty, but an outrageous act of worship where we put God first. There's an impact in our giving. There's an impact in our giving when we give to our local church, just like that couple did. They've given hundreds of thousands not to Christian causes, but to their local church, and then also to Tear Fund and to other Christian charities. They've invested in their local church. There's an impact to Redeemer when we give. We can have this hall. We wouldn't have this hall without money. <laughs> like God wants a heart, but also we do need some money to do this stuff. You know, When you gave to Tear Fund um, six weeks ago for the East Africa Appeal, we gave £2,500 as a church that would have fed children who would otherwise not had any food. There is an impact when you give. Mary was an unmarried woman in a male-dominated society. She was not wealthy, but guess what? We're talking about her outrageous act of worship today, 2,000 years on. There is an attitude in her giving that is not simply like cheerful, but outrageous. So you might be familiar with the words to Paul um, when he says it to the church in Corinth. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In Proverbs, it says, one person gives freely yet gains even more, another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes will be refreshed. Deuteronomy 15 says, Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. 
We need to reclaim the goodness of God. I genuinely think this. I've been thinking this for some time. I think there's a fear in churches about believing for the goodness of God because we're scared that we're going to sound like the prosperity gospel. Actually, that we're going we're gonna to sound like the prosperity gospel. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically guaranteeing God will reward you financially if you give financially. Like, I guarantee it's just like it's going to happen. Like, I give, oh, I know because God's automatically going to give back. And we get quite worried about that. Therefore, we actually minimize God's goodness. We minimize that it says here that he promises to bless, refresh, and prosper, that we will abound in every good work if we're generous to him and his people. Sarah brought that contribution earlier on God speaking and us being distracted and not hearing. Is money our distraction from hearing God this morning? You know, the other Sarah then brought from Psalm 139 saying, examine me, lead me back to you. I'm not about to land on three points where you say, tick, tick, tick. I'm, I'm landing on your heart here because this is a heart that's got to be transformed. And I believe God is speaking. And even just in the worship, I just said, following actually those two contributions, I said, God, is there something really specific you want to say today? I believe God speaks through words of knowledge. His Holy Spirit just wants to illuminate things. And I just had these two words come to mind, car repayments. Car repayments. And I was like, okay, let's go with this. And I actually think there's someone here, when I was talking about not God only not wants a cheerful giver, but a good steward, I think there's someone just in over your head. I think you bought that nice car on that monthly repayment plan, and, it, and now you're like, you're tight, you're going into debt, you're going down, and you just think, I need to let go of that car, just so I can have less repayments going out each month. Like, that might be you here this morning. If it is, I'd, I would be so encouraged to pray with you. But I also think there might be someone else who's just had an accident, and you're like, oh man, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to pay for this? And I believe God's saying, I know this morning. I know you're in that place. So again, if that's you, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to just pray freedom over you for that. So what about all of us then? Not just those maybe focusing on car repayments. We have a gift day next week. I don't think anyone here has a billion. You may not have 100,000. You might not actually have 20 pounds. It doesn't matter, because God wants your heart. Next week, success isn't, we raised X amount. I don't think that. Success is, we had 50 new people give to church for the first time. Because that is a sign, a stake in the ground, that says, God, I'm putting you first. That could be five pounds, it could be so much more. But it's saying, God, I put you first. So give something next week. And where we have come so far is to see that Jesus longed and enjoyed the presence of his friends. He sat there and enjoyed a meal with them in their home. Mary was overflowing with thanks, gratitude, and offered a year's wages in outrageous worship. This drew sharp criticism from those who had a tainted view of money, but Jesus encouraged and praised her for her act of generous worship. We all need to relate how we view money. Go away think and pray. If you're a married couple, do that together. This week, think and pray about it. You're not going to get generous if you don't understand the way you hold a relationship with money. You need to, you need to do that, that work. If you're not married, 
Find someone. Talk it through. Get accountable. Do you waste it? Do you hoard it, neglect it, treasure it above all else, or see that it's on loan and all from God? Do we give sparingly, haphazardly, begrudgingly? If so, come to Jesus and pray about this today and respond in action next week. And finally, for us all, respond to Jesus. Mary worshipped Jesus, unashamed of public opinion and with everything she had, 